0: Our Father, we thank you uh, that Jesus is head of the church, that Jesus is head of the world, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And so as we come to your word, we also recognise we come under your authority. Well, we often have hard hearts when it comes to turning to you, and we often have our own agendas when it comes to your word So, Lord, I ask that you, by your great power, would penetrate our hard hearts, that you would create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us, that these seeds that are sown of your word would bear fruit, that you would grow in us your kingdom. And so we pray this together now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going through a series, uh, as Diane said earlier, through the book of Genesis. We're looking at uh, foundations for life. This is a very awesome book in the true sense of the word because it zooms right out and looks at this world that we live in, but it also zooms right in and looks at our particular lives in light of God's design. So, it is very important that we look at these things, and it's important no matter where you come from in your background. Whether you are sort of a Christian person, you've believed for some time, or you're more skeptical or still struggling with particular themes of Christianity, this is for you because God's word is for everybody. All scripture is breathed out and profitable for teaching and for a proof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness. And that is for everybody. And so we have a good word before us this morning. And this morning we are looking and zooming in on the topic of biblical manhood. Biblical manhood. Next week we'll look at biblical womanhood. And the reason we're doing that is because this text sets our understanding in the Bible and in life for what it is to be a man. I have referred to already the idea of being human, or in Latin, the imago Day, being made in the image of God. And we're going to look at that in the context of manhood. But it's important for us to see what the Bible says about being a man. It's very important because in our day and age, these things are disputed. Disputed increasingly so in our Western Postmodern secular world and so it's increasingly important that we turn back to this book of foundations and find out well what does the bible actually teach us about manhood now my family and I just sowed some seeds recently some sunflower seeds we were given them about a year ago uh, and they just sat in a packet sort of a brown paper bag packet for a year but the good thing about seeds is that they can burst into life under the right conditions. So first we had to um, plant the seeds in some good soil. But essentially the seed on its own is inert. It cannot do anything on its own. And that's really important for us just as we dive in to God's word and we consider Christianity. this uh, Our lives, if you will, if they are a seed, they cannot do anything in relation to God on their own. They must have external input into them. So the seed must be planted in good soil. And secondly, we've begun to water these sunflower seeds. The idea is that they will burst forth and uh, grow tall uh, and have those beautiful sun facing flowers that we all uh, enjoy. And if they are watered, they also need to be oxygenated. You'd hope there is oxygen outside. And the idea is that the seed literally absorbs the water and it softens the hard outer shell within the seed so that something transformative might take place in the middle. And then third, the sun must heat the soil to a certain temperature in order for a chemical reaction to take place called germination. And literally, the seed cracks open on the side that is down in the soil, and what's called a radical bursts out, which is the beginning of a root system. And all this is happening under the surface, and eventually you see two leaves burst forth. And they've actually, these sunflower seeds have just begun to do that. So almost all of this work is beneath the surface, and yet what you see eventually is these leaves, which turn into a long stalk, which turns into a flower, which then reveals its beauty. So uh, in light of this really instructive uh, thing that God has written into nature, I want to look at the good soil that we need for creating biblical manhood, uh, the water that we need to soften the outer shell, because it needs to be cracked open as it turns out, in order to produce life, and thirdly, and thirdly, the germination how the hard heart of manhood is transformed into something living and life-giving. So what is this good soil? What is this good soil that we see? Well, the good soil is the image of God in manhood. So verse 27 says this again, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is not unique to men. This is also for men. And women, both men and women, are co-equal, created in the image of God. The text is explicit about that. We uh, we like the Latin term "amargo day," been made in the image of God, because it says that human beings have inherent value from an objective sense, because God made them to be like Him. God made us to be like Him. So there's a, there is an inherent goodness to every man. There is an inherent goodness to every man. And this is countercultural in our western age. Manhood according to the Bible is not a social construct. Our gender and our sex are supposed to align as one. Why? Because God designed it so. Now it also makes sense in our culture today If you don't believe in God and you think that everything was made by nobody and nothing, that the ideas of fixed gender related to biological sex would disappear because we have no objective standpoint. But biblically, and we've actually referred to this over the last few weeks, we have uh, particular genders in manhood and womanhood because we have been made in the image of God and designed to be so. So, contrary to uh, some public opinion today, being a man is good in God's sight. But it is corrupted. The Bible is so good to us because it tells us the truth. It tells us the goodness of man and it tells us the darkness and the evil of man. These first three chapters which we're going through in this series in the book of Genesis tell us of the goodness and the evil that has come to dwell in the hearts of humanity. Manhood is corrupted by sin. Rather than using our strength to serve, we use it to domineer. As men, rather than taking responsibility, Adam blames Eve for his own sins. So man is good, but what we have become has been corrupted by sin. However, what we do see in our text is the character of manhood is about taking responsibility. One of the good things about this pre-fall time, that is... Uh, We're looking at humanity, particularly in verse 27 here, when there is no sin. So we see human beings as they ought to be, and once were. To us it's very hard to grasp, it's almost like uh, a fantasy world, and yet this is God's design that we are good, made in his image, and this is how we ought to be. Uh, This the uh, idea of manhood is centred in responsibility. Let me read this out to you from Genesis 2 and from verse 15, speaking specifically about men. "'The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "'You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, "'but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, "'for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die.'" What do you see? The man is given responsibility. He is to work, and work is good. We covered that last week. He is to use the world that God has put him in to create and develop it, to bear fruit, to multiply, and we see, we'll see that later when Eve comes into the picture. Men are supposed to, biblically, take responsibility within the world that God has put them in into. That is part of their design. Manhood is also about self-sacrificial love. Adam's role was to love and serve the Lord his God, to eventually lead his family and lift up and exalt his wife as he does in chapter 2. He sort of sings a song to her of love The idea is that in this husband-wife relationship, the man was to lead in the development of the world through his work, through his family, and eventually through this culture and nation building that they were to take part in. That is God's design. He and his wife were co-equal in the image of God. And I've just been reading a biography on Tim Keller recently, and uh, who's a... Well known Presbyterian uh, pastor in the US. And she is, her, his wife, Kathy, so Tim's wife, Kathy, was often asked, How do you feel about being number two in the relationship? And she said, I'm not number two. I said, I love being the wind behind his sails. We work together. There is no number two, we work together they saw their relationship as a true partnership. And that's what we see in the Bible. We see a true partnership. Different roles based on the biological and gender that they are, and yet co-equal before God. However, a snake turns up. Every time a snake turns up in the Bible, it's generally bad. But a snake turns up in Genesis chapter 3 to destroy The relationship between Adam and Eve, man and woman, and the relationship with God at the same time. Very opportunistic is Satan. Notice that in this situation, Adam was there when Eve was being deceived by the serpent and he did nothing about it. He did not take any responsibility. He did not step up and serve and love his wife as he was supposed to. He did not say, I will face the snake. But he watched on in cowardice, rather than showing his love by serving his wife in the face of evil. So manhood is both about taking responsibility. It's about self-sacrificial love. And manhood is good, though corrupted because it's firstly made in the image of God. This brings us to the very uh, cultural and topical question. Why does Christianity promote a binary gender? Binary meaning one of two. It's either male or female. Why does Christianity do that? The Bible tells us that that is the way that we are made. We are purposefully made to be male and female, as the text tells us, and spiritually so, too. Sex and gender, therefore, biblically, are unanimous as one. Now, we know, uh, because we have a a lot of uh, scientific uh, information, biological information available to us today, although God still knows better, but we know there are very rare exceptions where those things are not so clear. But the exception is not the rule. It it should not be the rule. Without fixed categories, that is norms and examples, we are more and more confused. Our desire for freedom and absolute choice in this world does not bear good fruit. It leads to confused people. It leads to men not knowing what it means to be men. It leads to women not knowing what it means to be women. It leads to unbiblical categories being created which become destructive to the human self but we are forced through political correctness to abide by certain terminology. Now I say that because I can publicly at the moment in Australia but I say it for our good because I am grieved to know uh, that there are many children who have been taught falsehood in relation to these things, and ongoingly so, and it will be to their detriment. Now, this will come out eventually because God's purposes will prevail. I have great confidence in that because because at the very least, if you do something contrary to its design, it will end up being bad. No wonder men are often confused or depressed or moved to extremes of aggression or overt sexuality, or even move towards gender fluidity at both ends of the extremes. And we cannot seem to stop it, even though we're trying to as a culture and society, because there is no order, there is no pattern to follow. Yet in the Bible, in God's good design, in the work of Jesus Christ, we have stability for men, we have purpose. And we have a model which is good for everybody. It is good for society, it's good for individuals, it's good for families. It's good for the single man as well as the married man. It's good for the divorced man. It's good for the father and it's good for the son. It is good for men, God's design, and it is rock solid. And it has been around since the beginning. So we have the good soil We throw the seed into the good soil, but it is essentially inert unless it has some something external influence it. So what do we need? We need water to soften this outer shell to bring forth this life into what biblical manhood ought to be. Uh, In the movie uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, we are given this picture of manhood through Harrison Ford. And people love Indiana Jones, don't, don't they? He's a manly man. He's sort of a cowboy meets adventer, adventurer meets nerd. Sort of covers everybody, doesn't he? And because uh, he's, he's an archaeologist who is supposed to spend all of their time in universities and in books, and he's out there shooting people with guns and using a whip to swing you know, between the trees, a little bit like Tarzan as well. He is incredible, is he not? We love Indiana Jones, and yet he is a womaniser. He is arrogant and sometimes brave. He has a poor relationship with his estranged father, Henry, but over the course of their adventure, these two, this father and son, they team up, of course, to stop the Nazis from world domination. And part of their purpose is to stop the Nazis recovering the Holy Grail, that is, the cup that Jesus was to have uh, drunk of at the Last Supper, because in that cup is held eternal life. Whoever drinks of it will have eternal life, and the Nazis wanted this to use for their own evil purposes. So the climax of the movie, they've finally located the uh, Holy Grail themselves, and they're in this battle between good and evil, they're captured by the Nazis. Uh, Indiana's father, Henry, is shot uh, in, uh, with a, you know, a death blow in the stomach, and so Indiana is forced to face his fears and recover the grail himself using his ingenuity. There are three challenges he has to pass. The breath of God, which he has to kneel as a penitent man so that the swinging knives don't kill him. The second, the word of God, is to spell out the name of God as Jehovah, on a floor that is filled with traps. And the third challenge is the path of God, a hidden bridge that is only accessible to the one who takes the leap of faith and steps forward onto this path. Indiana, being a very resourceful man, overcomes all of these challenges supposed to weed out those who are unworthy. And yet there is one final challenge. When he enters the location where there are many grails set before him he has to choose the right one if he chooses the right one he will get the source of eternal life and be able to give it to his father to save him but he's instructed uh, by a, a crusader who's been living a very long time that if he chooses wrongly he will die on the spot choose life or death is before him he has the power to heal his father or to die himself At this moment, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade steps beyond itself. It goes into a far deeper story that is written into the narrative of all human beings. uh, The Bible says that God has put eternity into the hearts of man. The things of God are in every of the best narrative of humanity. At this moment, Indiana decides that he will choose a cup and drink it himself first and die if he must in order to save his father. Now, using his ingenuity, again, he chooses a carpenter's cup, not one with gold plate and precious stones upon it. He drinks the cup, which could be of death, but it's not. He takes that great risk in order to save his father from death. Now, just as Indiana was willing to take the cup of suffering to save another, Jesus took a much greater cup of suffering in our place to save us from our own lethal wound to sin. You see, these stories evoke something inside of us that men ought to be self-sacrificial. They ought to take up responsibility. We love the bravery of Indiana Jones. We don't quite like the womanising That we see in him, but when he has his crucible moment and he decides to sacrifice himself for the sake of others, we are thrilled in our hearts, and yet it points to a far greater story. What manhood needs now is a good example to follow. Men are told today what they ought not to do and not to be. Yet very rarely do we have the image of a good man, one we ought to follow, one who we can be changed into the image of a redeemer, if you will. One who will buy back what was lost and make it good again. There's words thrown around like toxic masculinity, and yet what is the good stuff? Our world will only tell you what we ought not to be, but we need something better. Jesus gives us this amazing image of manhood. Again, we've reflected that Genesis 1 and John chapter 1 are parallel texts. They tell us that Jesus was there in the creation. Jesus is the one speaking the world into existence. And yet he enters the world as what a human being, a man. He enters the world as a man. If you need an example, look no further to the one whom they called the word become flesh. Now when Jesus' disciples were fighting each other internally for power and prestige, rather than trying to serve their other brothers and sisters, they wanted to take control of them. This is James and John, relatives of Jesus. They use their family influence to try and get into positions of power to dominate. Jesus shows them a better way. In Mark 10 45, Jesus says this about himself For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice what manhood ought to be a servant to give his life for the sake of others. Isn't it incredible? And he takes up responsibility for it. He corrects, and yet he uses his own example to move them to change. Isn't that incredible? No other person can do this for you because every other man has Corruption by sin in their heart. And so you cannot follow them completely. But Jesus, you can. His story stacks up. We see that Jesus is willing to take ultimate responsibility for sin. Jesus is willing to take ultimate responsibility for being a man and give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, a little bit later in the book of Genesis, uh, we're given the story of uh, two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau was the oldest, and so according to the rules of primogeniture, which means the firstborn son gets the inheritance, that was the way pretty much all of uh, culture has worked, every culture across the world has worked up until really uh, the last century or so, and still in many cultures around the world, the firstborn son is to get the inheritance. And so that was Esau who was to receive that. And yet, Jacob, the younger brother, and whose name actually means he cheats, cheated his brother out of his inheritance twice. He got his mum on, in on it the second time, or she got him in on it. It's a bit hard to see. But there is this reversal of the way things ought to be. Jacob takes matters into his own hands. He's not into serving other people. He will cheat his way into taking control of others. Even though he was a man who dwelled amongst the tents. He wasn't a big, strong man. He was a cowardly man. And yet he used his desire for power and control to get what he wanted. And yet... After an encounter with God, some many years later, Jacob is changed. His name is changed to Israel. Israel means wrestles with God or triumphs or victory in God. This man who was once a cheat and took matters into his own hands, who shirked responsibility to love and to care for others, that rather than serving In a self-sacrificial way, he took. He was a changed man because he turned to God for the first time. What happened? Well, Jacob began to get a bit of his own medicine. He went to serve uh, on a family farm for some time, for many years, and he was cheated. And he realised at some point, when he was under threat from his brother, he was really getting what he was owed, and he was under threat from his former family employee, whom he, he was being cheated by. He realized that his whole life he'd been cheating other people. He'd been taking matters into his own hands. He'd been avoiding the responsibility that he should have had. And he'd been serving only himself. And so finally, rather than turning to man and taking matters into his own hands, he turns to God and he is changed. He is changed. There's something about an encounter with God that changes a man. It softens the heart. It brings that hard outer casing into something that can be fruitful. I want you to consider this for a minute. If we have in the Old Testament the law, and enough that if we live by it, we can actually have a right relationship with God, then why do we have the New Testament? If we have enough in the Old Testament, even in the book of Genesis, to tell us how men ought to be, why do we need more? Because man... By default, whether we are cowardly and avoid responsibility or whether we are domineering and don't serve others, we cannot help ourselves. We need an external influence. We need an example. We need someone who will step into our problems, step into our own manhood and change us from the inside out. We need someone who is willing to really take responsibility. In Jesus, we have that person. When sin had corrupted humanity, and every hero in the Bible that sort of stood up, we thought, maybe in this one there'll be something good. Even in King David, maybe in this one there'll be the right man. What does he do? He abuses his power. He becomes exceedingly violent, he, be, he commits adultery, overly sexualized. We see the previous king was cowardly. We see time and time again that human beings and men as examples, even as heroes, fail us. They're not enough. They don't take full responsibility and they cannot deal with the human heart. But Jesus can. We have one man who stood up, who said, I'll take the cup. And yet his cup was one of suffering that he voluntarily took and he knew it would lead to death. And yet he took up that cup in order to save the many. This is substitutionary atonement. That Jesus would die and take the wrath of God upon himself, drinking the cup, as the metaphor says, rather than us having to do it. That's the kind of man that we need. We also see someone who is merciful, someone who serves others, someone who does it not just by taking responsibility, but out of love. Jesus didn't go to the cross just because the Father told him. Jesus said, I could command an army of angels to come down and deliver me right now if I wanted to when he was put before a fraudulent court. And yet he did not do so. Why? Because the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. He did it in love. In Jesus, we have a man who lays down his life for the sake of others in humility and is courageous and stands up and takes responsibility. Those two things don't come together except in fantasy worlds. But why do we fantasize about them? Because there is one who did. So we need some good soil. We need an idea of what the image of God in biblical manhood is. We need context. We need water to soften the outer shell. We need someone better than us, an example for men to follow, not just negativity, not just toxic masculinity. We need someone worthy to follow. But in order for the seed to truly germinate, the hard heart of manhood must be cracked open in a radical shot down and life brought to it. In the book The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis we see a young boy called Edmund one of four children he's the second uh, he's the third oldest in the family. Uh, In the In the book, uh, these four children during the uh, bombing raids on London and World War II are sent off into the country. They find a magical wardrobe which leads them to another land. Edmund enters the land and is met by a wicked witch. And this witch tells him, even though he is not the firstborn son, that he can get all the power that he ever dreamed of and she will make him a prince if only he commits treason against his brothers and sisters if only he betrays them into her hands. Edmund can get all the power he wants to dominate. He can shirk all the responsibility because of his cowardice if he gives himself over to the wicked witch. Eventually, though, in the story, Edmund is caught out. His plot is foiled. The great king in this magical land of Narnia who is actually a lion called Aslan, helps the other children to get Edmund out of there so that he might be saved from himself. However, this wicked witch comes back to Aslan and reveals that there is an ancient code which he must adhere to. This boy has committed treason. He has broken the law. He has betrayed his people. And so she is owed his life. And so Aslan turns up and negotiates with this wicked witch that there is perhaps even a deeper magic, an older written code that she must abide by too. That he himself, this great lion, this king, can take the place of Edmund to have death, for him, not for the young boy. So on the stone table where they were, Aslan the great lion and king voluntarily takes responsibility. And in self-sacrificial love, he lays down his life on that table. However, from before the dawn of time in the land of Narnia, there was another rule, that if one was to lay down their life as an innocent one for the sake of another, that he would rise again. The great lion, Aslan, reverses the evil reign of the white witch. How? Through taking up responsibility where man had failed and through offering himself in self-sacrificial love. And it seems that at the end of the story that Aslan transforms Edmund too. Edmund realises that something has happened that shouldn't have happened, and yet it's a great thing, that he has been delivered. This example seems to get into Edmund's heart, but he doesn't fully understand it. And so Edmund's two sisters, uh, Lucy and Susan, discuss things afterwards. Does he know, whispered Lucy to Susan, what Aslan did for him? Does he know of the arrangement with, with the witch, what it really was? Hush! No, of course not, said Susan. Oughtn't he be told, said Lucy? Oh, surely not, said Susan. It would be too awful for him. Think how you'd feel if you were he. At the same time, I think he ought to know, said Lucy. You see, Edmund doesn't even realise that what Aslan had done for him. He just took the benefits of it. And so just like you and me, sometimes we hardly grasp what Jesus has done for us. We hardly grasp it. And yet if we did, if we did, it would be absolutely transformational. Susan was worried that it would be a too heavy burden to bear. Imagine that someone great died for you. Imagine that there was this amazing, perfect person who rather than you taking the bullet, they took it for you. Would you feel bad? You might. You might feel terrible about it unless you realised who that person was and why he did it. If he did it because that's who he is, if he did it because that comes out of his heart of love, well, then you'd be moved to love him the hard seed begins to crack open. You see, it's not just what Jesus did, but it's how he did it for you and for me. It's not just that Aslan died on a stone table, it's that he did it for Edmund and in his place. It's not just that Indiana Jones you know, overcame all these trials and tests through his ingenuity, at the last moment he took a step of loving self-sacrifice for the sake of another. And that's why we love him. You're moved from appreciation or trying to live up to an unattainable example to love. And the move is where the hard heart of man cracks open and life enters in and we are transformed. There are three images that I want to finish with as applications for us. Three ways in which men are called to be like Jesus. Firstly, we are to become like Christ in fatherhood. Now, I'll give you a bad example to begin with. Homer Simpson is a terrible father. What does he do? He neglects his family by spending his time in the pub, comes home and strangles his son, and then gets angry at him when he's disobedient. I mean, what do you expect? Homer is both lazy and avoids the self-sacrificial love required to beautify his family and be a role model to his son. And this is what we're fed. Crazy. And yet we laugh because it's true. But in Luke 1.17, John the Baptist is to set the way for Jesus. And what is, he, what is his ministry to do? It says this, return the heart of the fathers to their children. Or the dads who work too much, they avoid family responsibility, God has come to change. Or the dads who are too lazy to serve their family. God has come to change. He has come to return the heart of the fathers to their children. He has come to put things in their right order that we can be the fathers as men that God would call us to be because we have a heavenly father who will not forsake us, who will never leave us. But we have an example in Jesus whom we love because he gave himself for us in responsibility and in self-sacrificial love. And if that moves you, you will become like him. You will be conformed once again into the image of Christ. Notice in the image of God, broken And corrupted by sin, Jesus returns and through him and his work, we can again become what we were made to be, returning the hearts of the fathers to their children. That's the first image. The second image is this. It is to honour Christ in singleness. Fatherhood does not apply to all of us, depending on our stage of life, and the life that we've lived. And that's okay and good. Jesus did not have a biological family through his own children. Neither did the Apostle Paul, as far as we know. In fact, the Bible talks about the advantage of singleness, and yet not because we are free to be more selfish, and not because we can do whatever we like, or shirk responsibility, or avoid self-sacrificial love because we don't have dependence? No, because we have more opportunity to be responsible, but we have more opportunity to show self-sacrificial love. Paul explains it in this way, and we can apply this to his singleness. He says, I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul was changed by Jesus as a single man. He had a relatively free life. He could travel and do all sorts of things, go on ministry trips. He could work, you know, with his hands in his tent making business. And yet, it wasn't for his own ends. He wasn't being lazy. And he wasn't consumed by his work and avoiding responsibility or self sacrificial love. He was doing it because Jesus had changed him. He'd learnt the secret Him who strengthens me. And so, as single men, we have a responsibility then not to use our singleness to take advantage of others sexually not to serve only ourselves in employment or in ministry or in life or in laziness, but rather to take up a calling to be like the one who calls, like Jesus. Finally and lastly, the third image, to honour Christ in marriage. Again, not all men will be husbands But many of us are. And marriage does have a special place in God's design. Husbands are to lead and to love and to serve their wives as Christ loved the church. The image of a husband is one of responsibility and self-sacrifice in love. Now, if Christ, if Jesus himself the most powerful person that ever lived, could lay down his life for us, then husbands, you can lay down your life for your wife. You can take up responsibility to be the spiritual head of your home. This is something that I've wrestled with. In fact, it took me 10 years to come to terms with that I had to be the spiritual leader in my family sure i knew what the bible said on such matters i knew that the husband is the head of the wife as you know christ is the head of the body i knew that it was not to domineer but to serve i knew that it was about self sacrificial love and yet i thought always blamed other people i thought I don't have enough time these people aren't putting in their bit i'll do it when i feel like it avoiding responsibility No self-sacrifice. Ten years. And then finally it dawned on me, it's my responsibility. Nobody else's. And yet what changed? Ten years. What changed? What moved in me that got me thinking about these things? It was him. It was him. It was me realising that marriage is not about Me, it's about Jesus. He needs to be the centre. That I had everything I needed in Jesus and if he is truly enough, then I am freed to lovingly serve and to take up responsibility. And I began to realise that when I don't feel like Jesus is enough, I need to turn to him. And so I tell you, men, husbands, if you don't feel like Jesus is enough for you and you need to take, if you don't feel like taking up responsibility and you want to wait, you need to turn to Jesus. Let his example soften your outer shell. Let him crack open your hard heart like mine. And maybe then you'll shoot down a radical into that good soil. And take up the calling of God to be redeemed into the image of Christ, the true man. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. We need the true man. The one who gave himself for us. To be better husbands. To be fathers whose heart is set on their children. And Lord, we can't do that alone. We can't even do that by your example alone. We need you to come into our lives in the Holy Spirit and renew us, renew a right spirit within us. Lord, change the men in this room. And Lord, I ask that you would change the men in this world, not through force and law, but through the loving self-sacrifice and responsibility of Jesus. And Lord, I ask that you would move in our lives that we might be under the praise and glory of him. We pray this together in Jesus' name, amen.